Hey everyone, welcome to Neighbor Science, the only podcast about political economy and anime. I'm Ryan Salisbury, and today I have a first-time guest, Nate. Hey everybody. How you doing today, Nate? I'm doing pretty good, all things considered. Good as anybody can be doing nowadays. Yeah. Uh, do you want to tell everyone a little bit about, about yourself? Uh, sure, yeah. I'm a, a social ecologist uh, living in Oregon. Um, I don't know. I uh, just recently started a podcast about uh, leftist anarchist theory called Works in Theory Podcast. Oh, I didn't um, even know that. I'll have to check that out. Brand new. Just one episode so far. Yeah, cool. please do. Um, awesome. Yeah, check it out, everyone. And, and uh, um, when I'm not... Do I remember right that you you like work in um, something to do with agriculture? Or am I thinking of someone else? Oh, yeah, you're right. Uh, I'm recently out of work, but uh, okay. up until really recently, I was working in a hemp greenhouse. Nice. Yeah, if anyone has a <laughs> a job in hemp greenhouses, uh, let them know. <laughs> yeah, please. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like on an extended Christmas break right now. <laughs> Okay, uh, so today we are starting a new uh, episode series. It is sort of sort of a book club. I guess it's not really a book club because uh, I don't know. It's not a bunch of people reading it together. Uh, but you you've already read the book. It's uh, "Seeing Like a mm -hmm. State" by James C. Scott. Um, so I'm I'm gonna do one episode for each chapter, and that way, not only can I like give myself enough time to read because I'm, I'm a very slow reader. We can also get into some really fine detail on discussing everything in the book. Um, so just to give an intro to who the author is, I've mentioned him on the show before, definitely, because uh, I read Against the Green, which is also by him. He's a professor at University of uh, Wisconsin-Madison, whose recent works have become influential to anarchists, especially of the social ecology, anti-civ, and post-civ movements. He is prolific in archival research and ethnographic fieldwork. I found an interesting bit of trivia on his Wikipedia page uh, to research his third book, Weapons for the, Weapons of the Week. Uh, Scott spent 14 months in a village in Kedah, Malaysia. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Between 1978 and 1980, when he had finished a draft, he returned for two months to solicit villagers' impressions of his depiction and significantly revised the book based on their criticisms and insight. Um, that's pretty cool stuff to me. On the other hand, if you are a conspiracy-minded campist, you will probably want to ignore everything he says, because just to get it out of the way, uh, James Scott uh, at one point received a fellowship to study in Burma, where he was recruited by an American student activist who had become an anti-communist organizer for the CIA. And... He agreed to do reporting for them, and at the end of his fellowship, took a post in the Paris office of the National Student Association, which accepted CIA money and direction in working against the communist-controlled global student movements over the next okay. few years. <laughs> so, oh, great! <laughs> yeah. So, uh, if there's any MLs listening, I'm sure they're already like, "Oh, typical anarchists, just doing whatever the CIA says." Uh, yes, that's yeah, that's what we're doing. <laughs> Those emails listening to your show. <laughs> and you also found out something notable uh, about him, Nate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, during the 2020 primary, uh, I guess that he donated uh, a sizable sum of money to Elizabeth Warren, of all people. Well, you know, got to be pragmatic. <laughs> yeah, honestly, I, if you kind of read through his work, he I think he's a technocrat. I really think he is, yeah. you know. And so I'm not that surprised by the Liz Warren support. Like books are always, or like a lot of them are about states and non-state peoples and like sort of the conflicts between them. So you'd think he might be, he would be an anarchist of some sort, but mm -hmm. uh, actually he has a book called Two Cheers for Anarchism, um, which is like explicitly not three cheers is the idea uh, where he's yeah. basically, I haven't, I haven't read it, but the idea is something along the lines of like anarchism is a pretty good idea, but here's why it doesn't work. We need Liz Warren to help out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that's that's like the background of the author. I still think it's very valuable to read. Um, I mean, the first chapter was good as fuck, and uh, Against the Grain was really good as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just really haven't, um, with the exception of maybe David Graeber, like found writing about I don't know, sort of like what it means to be a state. 
uh, better than his, which I just think is like really useful for people who are sort of trying to understand the state and uh, you know how to topple it. Yeah, it's it seems tough because um, it kind of seems like in order to have a really good analysis of the state, you have to have like a really sort of synthesis analysis. You know, you have to like, mm-hmm. look at a lot of different sciences and studies and like areas of society and parts of history and integrate them all together. And scholars tend not to do that. They tend to like focus on like really specific uh, topics. Yeah, for sure. And I, I guess that's probably just because like, that's what their, you know, professors advise them to do when they're like writing their, uh, you know, their master's thesis and all that. They're like, make sure that, you know, your topic is specific enough to like find something interesting in. I don't know, but yeah, yeah, definitely get published kind of, and I have something new. I think that's why Graber's work is so interesting is, is because he does a lot of the integration type of theorizing or study. Yeah, absolutely. And you get some of that in Scott too, where he's like, you know, jumping from talking about uh, forests to like, uh, you know, tax laws and, and maps and measurements and things like that. Yeah, like I, when I first started reading chapter one, I didn't keep this up because it's like a lot of work. Because it's he, uh, this is the worst part about the book. He uses endnotes, which I don't know why he would do that. But (laughs) (laughs) when I first started reading the chapter, though, I was like, every time I came across an endnote, I would go to the back and like read what it is. And like a huge number of the sources in the first part of the book are like on forestry science and like the history of forestry science, which like you would never think has anything to do with states. For sure. That's certainly not where you would go first to like uh, start understanding how the state conceives of the world. Mm-hmm. Like crack open your forestry science books. Yeah. It's interesting <laughs> though. Um, I think Marx mentions German foresters in his books and Bickler and Nitzan definitely mention German foresters as like the start of capitalism, but they bring it back to like the 13th century or something like that. So yeah. I'm not sure like what exactly they're talking about, but I think Marx might've been talking about like what we're about to cover right now. Yeah. Like about the, uh, like firewood collection or whatever. Right. It was like, um, even if, even while, somebody uh sort of owned the the woods like the lord or whatever uh mm-hmm. the people living in the area still had like free use of the fallen wood for firewood mm-hmm. um to a certain point until you know they started enclosing the whole area yeah if i remember right in um capitalist power the whole thing was that they like originally thought of woodlands as like stocks and they shifted their thinking uh, into thinking of it as flows and that was like what they saw as the first significant event in the history of capitalism interesting but i haven't read the book in a couple of years and so i might be a little off on that chapter one state projects of legibility and simplification oh that's part one sorry chapter one is nature and space okay so Scott starts talking about German foresters in the 18th century who wanted to increase reliable yields of commercial wood from the forests they managed. And the reason they wanted to do it was actually for preservation. But um, the reason it was helpful was it would allow states that they contributed wood to to better plan their actions in the long term, like for fiscal planning purposes just to have a better idea of like how much wood they could expect to get from a certain plot of land over a certain amount of time. Yeah, exactly. But unfortunately for them, forests are ecological systems. And so their yield is highly unpredictable. I thought of an example, kind of, it's only sort of related to this, but uh, in the book, Restoration Agriculture, Shepard talks about a tree behavior called masting, where rather than dropping the same number of seeds every year, wild trees will drop a small number like for three years in a row and then every fourth year they'll drop like a huge number and that like Mm. essentially controls the population of squirrels and other seed eating animals uh so that they can like reproduce without um 
you know, their their seeds getting gobbled up. They just have another nuts eaten. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, forests as a whole are way more complicated than that. So that's just like one small behavior of like certain types of trees. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. And you can imagine like, uh, you know, in a forest that's not being sort of regimented, if you have one tree that's grown to an enormous size, well, that means all of the trees around it are actually going to be much smaller because they don't have access to the same light or nutrients or whatever. So in an unmanaged forest, you're not going to get a predictable amount of wood over a predictable period of time from even two different trees of the same species. Right. Scott cites The Calculating Forester, which is a, a book all about German foresters, um, which I read a little bit in detail, um, just the chapter that he cited. They were talking about how prior to the late 18th century, German foresters used area measurements of forest plots to estimate the amount of wood they would be able to harvest. So they would measure the whole area they controlled, estimate the ideal duration to leave between cuttings, and then they would divide it. Uh, they would divide the whole territory into a number of plots equal to the number of years to leave between cuttings. Um, and the idea was they would get that many similar yields of wood. Um, but as you just explained, there's a lot of reasons why that wouldn't necessarily work um, ideally. And also because of the varied terrain in, in Germany, which prevented correct uh, estimations of area without the use of instruments. So you like, you know, it's hard if, if there's like a valley in the middle of something to estimate how far it is by eyesight um totally and then also like you just said because of the varied age of trees in the forest uh, which results in further variation in the amount and maybe quality i wasn't i wasn't sure what they meant exactly um of of wood and the techniques they tried were useful but not reliable for long-term fiscal planning um until a forest inspector named Johann Gottlieb Beckman developed an improved technique for estimating the amount of saleable wood. So he got a plot of wood that was like a representative sample of the nearby forest. And he had like a team of woodsmen and he gave each of them a set of colored birch nails. I don't know how you make nails out of birch, but uh, anyway. <laughs> uh, and some simple instructions for like classifying trees by size. So they went around the plot and they stuck a nail in each tree, uh, matching the color to its size. And uh, when they came back, all they had to do was count the number of nails they had left. And that would tell them like how many trees there were of each size in the in the plot. And then they could like multiply that by the number of uh, plots in the in the whole forest to get like a total estimate. One thing I don't think Scott mentions specifically is that. Uh, like I said before, his motivation for this was actually like to preserve the woodlands. Like I think, yeah, I didn't realize that. That's I, uh, it's kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah, I think the idea was like if you can better estimate how much wood there is, then maybe they won't have to cut as much of it down. I, I'm yeah, not sure. I could see that. I think that, like, I don't know. I I always just have a tendency to think that that I don't know. It's sort of that high modernist mindset that uh, Scott mentions in the introduction. Uh, just like this kind of idea that uh, things aren't going to work out unless people are actively managing them. Right. Yeah. Like, sort of, I don't know, this idea that like the best way to preserve the forest is for, you know, some person to know every type of tree, every, you know, size and age. And then like we can somehow manage it rationally. I wonder if that was in a like a context of like a rejection of God, because you would think that like a like a really christian mindset would be god could make the forest more perfect than man ever could oh but you forget that uh, god made the forest for man to manage oh okay yeah that makes sense i, I, I think that it's like that sort of idea of like right because like all the all the modernists like the people we think of as sort of like the the fathers of sciences today like they were all pretty religious they all thought like that what they were figuring out was stuff that God had sort of left for them to figure out. That's true. Yeah. I'm, I'm really bad with religious stuff. Cause I, I was never really raised religious. So I, I'm always like pretty clueless about it. <laughs> like most yeah, of the yeah. stuff I've learned is like either through my early teen years, arguing with uh, creationists or, <laughs> right. 
like in my recent years, like becoming interested on how religion fit into the state, um, you know, in, right. in yeah, just, pre-modern history. Yeah, I, I was raised Catholic, um, but I am all better now. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you probably have more of an insight on like how how you can justify things with even with, uh, you know, religion at the back of it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So despite uh, Beckman being motivated by preservation, he kind of did the opposite, paving the way for the modern problem of widespread deforestation, because like the um, the science that evolved out of out of what he did is still essentially what's used in forestry. I know in North Carolina, there's like huge amounts of uh, pine stands. Like if you're, if you drive down the highway, you can just see like rows and rows of pine trees, um, on plantations. And of course it's the same here in Oregon. It's like, uh, Christmas tree farms, as far as you can see, just like rows and rows of dug firs, one right next to the other, all looking identical. Mm -hmm. Nothing underneath them, just wasteland underneath. Yeah. From this, uh, method of um surveying the trees it wasn't like a huge reach to progress from you know scientific measurement of the forest to scientific management so later german foresters tried to turn the whole forest into like a garden or farm uh which they called a normal baum um so like nate was just saying there's rows and rows of identical trees with nothing under them uh because they they basically wanted the minimum amount of stuff to get exactly what they needed because that would be the easiest to measure and to manage. Um, yeah, and, and every additional thing that's not, you know, a tree that you plan on harvesting is just like another variable that you have to account for that might throw off the, uh, you know, the prediction of of whatever you're, you know, trying to predict. Right. Yeah. All those other trees are just weeds. All of the like dead leaves are are litter. You don't need any of that. All you need is the exact trees and put them all in a, in a nice row so they're easier to cut. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the result was forests that look like they were intelligently designed by the absolute psycho that's the main character of the Bible, if he were actually real, <laughs> uh, with everything in neat rows and no wasted space. Um, yep, absolutely. Yeah. But unfortunately, uh, again, forests are ecological systems and their yield is highly dependent on things that are seemingly not useful to states. So while their experiment worked okay for the first generation of trees, it collapsed almost immediately afterwards. Uh, the reasons are numerous and complex, but include uh, different types of trees, both living and dead, house different types of wildlife, and you kind of need wildlife for a thriving forest. The lack of uh, neat uniform rows in real forests is actually a major factor in protecting against storm damage. So if you have different sized trees, then they're less likely to get knocked down by high winds or uh, thunder stri- uh, lightning strikes. Uh, the trees they had planted were, I think it was spruce, which has really shallow root systems, which is fine for the first generation because there were established root channels that the trees could follow. But by the second generation, those were gone. So they like could barely hang on. Um, and the trees they planted also had very slow decomposing leaves, which caused the failure of the nutrient cycle, forcing them to rely entirely on the fossil nu- nutrients of uh, the existing soil. Yeah, um, and of course, nowadays, you know, they'll just uh, cart in uh, synthetic fertilizers from elsewhere and like the soils just not even they don't even consider it right. factor anymore. And um, one thing that Scott pointed out that I didn't write down here was uh, th- even, even though this was like 300 years ago since trees grow so slowly they're still only on like the third generation of forestry uh, done using this technique. Yeah and uh, like you mentioned earlier they still do a lot of forestry in this exact same way like there's mm-hmm. an understanding now especially among younger people that you know you need diversity in the forest you need uh, species that aren't just harvestable trees one thing that you know we found out recently uh, about is mycorrhizal fungi which 
Mm-hmm. Are like small strands of fungi that connect uh, all of the plants in a forest, basically under the ground uh, through their roots, and they help like nutrients out of the soil, cart nutrients from one plant to another. Um, and there's a lot of species we now know basically can't survive on their own without those. But when you dig up a whole forest, you know you kill all of that, and the trees you plant there to re- to replace it with, uh, they don't have that mycorrhizal network. It takes a lot of time to build it up. I've also read that they supposedly like help trees communicate. So like if, if a tree starts getting damaged, then it will somehow send a signal to other trees and they'll like release tannins or something. Yeah. It's, it's wild stuff. Yeah. If you ever have a chance to, to look up some of this stuff about mycorrhizal fungi. And and like I said, it's all sort of like just coming out in the last decade or whatever, Mm -hmm. but, um, but yeah, all the trees are talking to each other. They're like sharing nutrients. Sick trees are getting like, you know, extra care from healthier ones. Um, sometimes there's like what they call a mother tree, like a, a, you know, one older, bigger tree in the forest. That's sort of like a hub directing things. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's fascinating. Yeah. The, I think the Lord of the Rings had the most uh, realistic depiction of trees, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> so the new forestry methods they developed, even though they worked horribly and caused uh, like the collapse of, forests in much of germany uh became widely adopted and generalized into a science of state management called cameral science which uh, has been compared to mercantilism but is different in a lot of ways but it's basically a science focused on like centralized state management and like the science of bureaucracy and and stuff like that uh so i i put a discussion point in here uh, why would we trust central planners or even decentral planners with trying to solve ecosystem collapse while still trying to maintain like the Promethean high tech society that we live in now? Um, Either, you know, resembling today's society or like the fully automated luxury communism meme. Um, Since every inch of land devoted to controlled human use is one that has its ecology stripped away. And there's like actual trade-offs when it comes to land use, which the normal bam is like the most is a most extreme example of but you know very illustrative one yeah definitely and yeah i'll just make one con- c- correction there uh it's every inch of land devoted to like state human use right because um, yeah they like areas non-state people are living are like the most diverse areas the most ecologically uh uh i don't know what the word is uh, ecologically good areas um <laughs> ecologically stable there you go that's the word i was looking for yeah so you know we don't want to like fetishize certain lifestyles use of land but it's it is like very striking that um you know it's not it's not any human use it's like uh it's a certain type of human use of land that seems to be anti-ecological yeah i think uh instead of uh like you know planning committees we need uh bear worshiping cults to manage the land I mean, you know, if it works, it works. Right? <laughs> um, all right. Anything else you want to add before we get to the next little bit? Um, I, I'll just like basically sum up by saying that, like, as to your point about like why planning sort of doesn't work um, when it comes to ecology is basically, uh, and we'll talk about this more and you'll talk about it more as you go throughout the book, but uh, what Scott's talking about through a lot of this book, seeing like a state is that states need to see uh, through what he calls like a synoptic view. Like they can only focus on the things that are important to them and they necessarily have to sort of uh, bracket out everything else. Uh, and you've mentioned it a couple of times, but that just doesn't work with ecology. And uh, it's it's sort of like shows a certain arrogance because... It, it sort of is this idea that oh, we uh, we understand everything. We know it's important. We know it can be ignored. And of course, like history of our meddling uh, non-human nature has showed that we're wrong almost every time. Almost every time we're not thinking about something. Um, and we end up, you know, breaking something, basically. You know, we think that we can apply pesticides because, okay, well, you know, there's a system that has ants and bugs and if we get rid of the bugs then you just have the plants and that's all you need to know about the system without thinking about you know well what eats the bugs you know what happens to the pesticides when the bug gets eaten by a bird 
So just, uh, yeah, this idea that ecology is, is like infinitely complex and that's basically why it can't be centrally managed. It has to be like, you have to have a give and take with it. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm a little surprised you didn't mention the four pests campaign or whatever it's called. The, yeah, yeah. I know about it. Yeah, yeah. So it, much for CIA to... backing. He's he's the worst <laughs> CIA agent ever. <laughs> yeah, I know. Come on. When did this come out, too? <laughs> 1998. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah That's the surprising thing. I, th- I thought it was like way n- newer than that. And uh, I actually wish I had read yeah, it before, before any time today. But like, uh, especially before that episode that I'm going to mention later. It would have been very helpful in understanding what I was talking about in that. But yeah, anyway. Yeah. Uh, after I read this book, I start seeing these like these abstracting and homogenizing systems everywhere. Basically, yeah. anytime somebody is trying to control something from afar, they apply something like this. Yeah, this is one of those books that's like the they live glasses. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> The next section applies the lesson uh, learned from the attempts to make the natural world manageable to the realm of human society. So he starts talking about uh, like units of measurement, which I, I'm sure that I've mentioned this on the show multiple times now, uh, so maybe some people are getting tired of it, but uh, that thread where uh, that woman was like, I don't remember who it was exactly. I think it might have been like Lorelai or something, but she was like, uh, when you think about it, we, we should really abolish units of measurement. And she just got absolutely dogpiled <laughs> by mostly by Marxists uh, saying that she's stupid. And, you know, how can you, how can you make, how can you make trains without units of measurement? I think was basically what they were thinking. Yeah, definitely. When you start reading this, it's like, well, it sounds like she probably just read this chat, the chapter of this book, <laughs> like yeah, had a yeah, very exactly. straightforward conclusion from it. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what I thought when I saw that thread, I was like, Oh, somebody's been reading some Scott. <laughs> yeah. I hadn't even read it at that point, but I, I did know like what the gist of the book was. And I was like, yeah, I think she probably read seeing like a state or at least is talking about legibility in some way. And you know, yeah, kind of makes sense. Again, this is like just another example of you see this stuff everywhere. It's like this idea that like universal equals real kind of. Yeah. Where the Marxists are coming from. It's like uh, if we all know what a meter is, then like a meter is like a physical thing that exists, obviously. <laughs> Guess again. <laughs> uh, so Scott looks at a number of uh, different ways that systems of measurements uh, were highly localized and shifted over time. So he gives a lot of examples like uh, he he at first starts talking about like how a lot of times uh, measurements that you'd think would be in one unit are actually in another because the other unit is like more human oriented. Like um, if you were in, I think he said Laos um, and you ask how far away the next village is, they'll say like two rice cookings. Because everyone knows how long it takes to cook rice. Uh, you don't need a clock to uh, like know about how long that is. And since the terrain is so heavy there, like distance is a absolutely shit way to measure things. And w- what people are actually concerned with when they ask that question is like, how long will it take me to get there? Not like, oh, how many, how many steps am I going to have to take? Um, yeah, exactly. Or like, how many yardsticks could I yeah. lay end to end between <laughs> here and there? Yeah. <laughs> um, and like another example he gives is, uh, you know, for rice farmers, maybe they they measure things in hands because you can just like put your hand down, um, like a couple times to space, like figure out the space uh, between plantings, as opposed to carrying a ruler with you, which is completely insane. Um, yep. <laughs> and, uh, the first detailed example he gives is, uh, like a basket of grain, which is a unit of measurement that was all over the place in the medieval era. Um, but whose measurement was like wildly different depending on the locale 
and the time and like even on who is receiving it. So the local lord might say a basket is one liter, uh, just as, a, as an example, when he is collecting uh, grain for milling or collecting grain as like repayment of a loan. But he'll say the same basket is only 0.75 liters when he's giving out the flour that he milled or uh, loaning out grain. Uh, because in both cases, he advan- he gives himself an advantage, um, you know, get- getting more than he gives out. Um, yeah, and I-, I loved when he talked about, like, uh, peasants would uh, have whole industries devoted to, like, uh, trying to stretch out baskets and make them a little bit bigger and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. He's- he says that medieval villages had, like, elaborate sets of standards on how to measure the grain, not even just, like, the the like volume of it um but like the size of the basket uh i think probably the shape of the basket as well how to adjust measurements for damage and wear to baskets so like uh you know worn out basket might be stretchier and so you would have to like subtract a little bit from the basket uh in order to make it uniform um how high the grain should be poured from so like waist height or shoulder height um how damp the grain should be because drier grain, you know, would take up what less, yeah, less space, less yeah. space, yeah. Um, whether to heap the pile at the top of the basket or level it off or like hit the basket with something to, um, you know, filter it down a little bit, and uh, whether yeah. you can shake the container down, because all those things and would like significantly were- affect the measurement. You said Sorry. like even when you were uh, leveling it off, it was they would uh, specify whether the thing you leveled it off with could be sharp or blunt. Cause that would affect, you know, how much it took off the top when you leveled it. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, I think he said like a lot of these standards would be like written in like on a building in the village. If I remember right. Yeah. He said like there, there might be like a, a paradigm example of a basket in stone, like outside of a church. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, so the, like the, the would-be liberators of the French revolution were aware of all this. And so like they, they saw a lot of this as a form of tyranny, which in some ways it's, it's true. You know, if, if a Lord can give out, you know, three quarters of a liter and then demand one liter back, um, which actually Scott pointed out that in some cases, like, uh, the measurements would defer by like three times. Uh, like there would be like a three times difference between what they gave out and what they collected, um, which was called uh, la something like the reaction something. I don't remember. Yeah, I don't know. I don't have it right in front of me. React reaction uh, feodaire or something like that. Anyway. Um, so the you know the revolutionaries saw it as a form of tyranny, and so one of the things they wanted to do was to standardize measurements throughout the land, which on the surface level it seems like this would help commoners, you know, freeing them from the exploitative local lords and giving them like a standard unit of measurement for everything. But again, on a deeper level, it enabled centralized states to have much better insight into local conditions which led to the situation that we're in today with extreme uh the extreme power and oppressiveness of centralized states yeah definitely like you know i you certainly see how setting the the standard measurements would help people if they were being sort of cheated by the lord but uh you read something like uh caliban and the witch then you like you know sylvia federici sort of like takes the opposite tack where in her story it's like the peasants are always the ones cheating the lords out of a little bit of a of what they technically owe them so i'm sure it's like trade-offs either way um but as you say like the difference of having a a totalizing system is that it can be used by a state in the way that it is nowadays that's one uh, one book i've heard of a lot of times but uh never actually read is it worth reading good one. it's a good yeah, it's a good pair to this. It's uh, it's a lot about uh, peasants in uh, sort of medieval Europe, and um, sort of tries to show the ways uh, that capitalism was 
in a lot of ways, like a step down in terms of freedom for a lot of people in Europe at the time. It's interesting. I'd certainly recommend it. Sounds cool. I thought it was interesting. He said that like uh, these like sort of local measurements uh, that existed before the imposition of the like the universal systems are where we get terms like a handful or a stone's toss or within earshot from. That that was kind of interesting. And I think a lot of the like imperial is that what it's called imperial measurement system has has remnants of that. Um, I also yeah, totally. like I remember in in school measuring a yard of string using the like fingertip to nose ruler which he mentions okay. in here um you basically like take the string and then you pu- pull it out all the way as far as you can and then turn your you turn your head uh in the opposite direction and pull it to your nose and that's that's supposed to be a yard interesting on every person huh i never heard this before on every person yeah <laughs> everyone has the same length arm <laughs> and nose <laughs> Nature is really impressive. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, you know, nature knew we would need some sort of me- universal measurement system. <laughs> that's that's actually why people have different length arms is because some people have, you know, shorter noses. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so in the next section... Uh, Scott talks about property rights. So medieval villages had like a living complex of property rights to balance the various interests of people and groups in the village. The overarching category, we can we can just call the open field system because like a lot of the different property systems like shared similar characteristics to like the English open field system. Um, and that was basically where many people shared the same plots of land as opposed to now where every like all the land is in individually owned plots or privately owned plots. Um, so he gives a representative scenario, uh, which it's not a real example, but it's like an amalgam of real examples from that ethnographic study he did in, uh, was it Malaysia, Burma? I don't remember. Uh, I want to say Malaysia. Yeah. Anyway, um, so I'm just going to read this directly from the book. Um, He says, Let us imagine a community in which families have usufruct rights to parcels of cropland during the main growing season. Only certain crops, however, may be planted, and every seven years, the usufruct land is redistributed among resident families according to each family's size and its number of able-bodied adults. After the harvest of the main season crop, all cropland reverts to common land, where any family may glean, graze their fowl and livestock, and even plant uh, plant quickly maturing dry season crops. And uh, just as a side note, for those who have never studied medieval history, gleaning is basically taking what's left over from a harvest. Um, if I remember right, there's there were actually some places where like a small amount of harvested crops would be like intentionally left uh, for others to take. It was usually like uh, nomads or like poorer villagers um that would take those and so they they could just you know use that to uh to eat or to pay tribute or whatever um so back to the passage uh rights to graze fowl and livestock on pasture land held in common by the village is extended to all local families but the number of animals that can be grazed is restricted according to family size especially in dry years when forage is scarce Families not using their grazing rights can give them to other villagers, but not to outsiders. Everyone has the right to gather firewood for normal family needs, and the village blacksmith and baker are given larger allotments. No commercial sale from village woodlands is permitted. Trees that have been planted and any fruit they may bear are the property of the family who planted them, no matter where they are now growing. Fruit fallen from such trees, however, is the property of anyone who gathers it. When a family fells one of its trees or a tree is felled by the storm, the trunk belongs to the family, the branches to the immediate neighbors, and the tops, leaves, and twigs to any poorer villager who carries them off. Land is set aside for use or leasing out by widows with children and dependents of conscripted males. Usufruct rights to land and trees may be let to anyone in the village. The only time they be let to someone outside the village is if no one in the community wishes to claim them. After a crop failure leading to a food shortage, many of these arrangements are readjusted. 
Better off villagers are expected to assume some responsibility for poorer relatives by sharing their land, by hiring them, or simply by feeding them. Should the shortage persist, a council composed of heads of families may inventory food supplies and begin daily rationing. In cases of severe shortages or famine, the women who have married into the village but have not yet born children will not be fed and are expected to return to their native village. This last practice alerts us to the inequalities that often prevail in local customary tenure. Single women, junior males, and anyone defined as falling outside the core of the community are clearly disadvantaged. Okay. Do you have any comments on that passage? No, I think that it's uh, it's really interesting to see how, I don't know, like it, it sounds really complex when you read it all out like that, but you know, one of Scott's points in here is that if you're actually like living in this system, it actually is way, it makes way more sense than the sort of one imposed by the state. Um, cause it's, you know, you're not like walking around thinking about, okay, so there's been a crop shortage. So that means that like better off villages are expected to assume, but like, it's just like, oh, I'm hungry. I know I can go to my rich neighbor for food kind right. of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like that sort of like human, human level of it. Yeah. And now it's like, I'm hungry. I know I, that rich guy has a lot of shit in his house that I could steal. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I also found it uh, interesting for the same reasons. Um, I've been trying to think of like an analogy that, um, that would explain it, but I can't really come up with one. Maybe, maybe like uh gift exchange practices um, around the holidays. But I don't know. Those can also be like pretty easily codified, so they're not they're not that complex, I guess. Yeah, I I mean, are you talking about like an example of just like sort of more flexible local rules versus more outside imposed rules? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think you can imagine like, and this is just an example off the top of my head, so it might not make a hundred percent sense, but imagine you're playing a game of like uh, like touch football or something with your friends in like the park near your house so you just know okay that tree stump is out of bounds kind of mm-hmm. and that's just way and you know if, if i were to explain to you an outsider what all of the out of bounds well you know if you go to that uh tree stump you're out of bounds on the right and on the left you got to be like in line with that fence and this tree over and it might sound more complicated but to me who just like plays in this field every day i don't even need to think about it and you come in and you say, actually, the field's got to be X number of feet wide and what you know, X number of feet long. And now all of a sudden, even though you've imposed like you know the universal standard rules on the game, it actually like makes less sense in this instantiation of it. Yeah, I think that analogy works because a lot of those, a, a lot of games like that, if, if you play regularly, you know, develop like really esoteric rules for like, you know, specific situations that they've run into before, you know, that yeah, are like definitely. not like, part oh, of the we, official we figured stuff. Out, figured out it's easier to accidentally run out of bounds if you're running from that direction. So we give you a little bit more leeway if you're like coming from that, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's just like that, uh, that ability to like react to local conditions kind of. Yeah. I'm, I'm not a jock, so I, I, don't play sports, <laughs> but you definitely do the same kind of thing. Like when you have like a regular family gathering, if you play board games, the same kind of thing happens where, you know, there's the official game rules. Um, and then there's the rules that you use because either you think the game rules are not as fun as the way you do it, or just because like, you've always done it that way. Like sometimes you carry them over from your childhood. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, we have a lot of those for Uno. <laughs> That's funny. Uno was what I was thinking of, too. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Scott points out that it's a substantial challenge to actually codify all these different customs, not only because uh, this one system is very complex and contains a lot of assumptions that are opaque to outsiders, like we just said, um, but also because each village has its own system that is equally complex and they all change over time and depending on the situation. So if you were try if you were to try to like write out the rules of each village, um, first of all, it would freeze it in time because you know as soon as you write it down, uh, they'll start changing it afterwards, and so it'll be inaccurate. 
uh, which means either you have to like enforce that custom forever or just you know your rules are immediately out of date and incorrect but like uh the majority of of those who sought to codify all these different property relations they they wanted one standardized set of rules for everyone not just one for each village there were some people that he mentioned that um wanted to do one for each village but uh for the most part you know if you're a manager of a state and you want to manage a bunch of villages you want one set of rules for all of them scott gives the example of imperial russia before and after the stolypin reforms so uh Pyotr Stolypin, this is from Wikipedia, was a, a prime minister that sought to end the traditional obshchina, I think is how you pronounce it, uh, which is like the open field system, and the mir, uh, which is the commune system, which is weird because I thought mir meant dream. I don't know. Oh, no, that's Maria. Never mind. Uh, oh, yeah, mir is that the space station, isn't it? Does that mean commune? <laughs> uh i have no idea let's see didn't even know it was the space station <laughs> just a little aside okay this says it means peace or world so must have multiple meanings uh anyway the world <laughs> yeah yeah um so Stolypin wanted to end those systems and replace it with individual land ownership with the specific intent of producing farmers that were conservative and capitalist rather than radical um so at that time, the Russian farmers were like pretty radical and were like, fuck you to the state all the time. Um, and so he thought if like he gave everyone like individual plots of land uh, that were consolidated and gave them like uh, modern scientific agricultural techniques that they would become like profit driven and want to like better themselves and become rich. Um, yeah, become conservative capitalists. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, the U.S. did the same thing after World War II. Oh, okay, yeah. There's <laughs> um, like the GI Bill and stuff like that. You know, like oh, let's get people sense. invested in this system. That that seems to have been actually successful. So, yeah. not exactly like this. <laughs> <No kidding>. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the intended result was large-scale farms called Kutor, uh, agricultural co-ops, which I thought was interesting. That part of his plan were co-ops, which we normally associate with socialism. Um, agricultural education, which I'm not really sure what education they could give people that like have been living on that land forever. Um, new methods of land improvement by which I think they mean like amending the soil and not necessarily like improvement in the general sense. Um, and And, and also maybe be referring to like mechanized machinery, you know, tractors and things like that. Right. Exactly. Um, and finally, uh, affordable lines of credit for peasants. Um, so let's see, I'm going a little out of order here. Um, yeah. So prior to these reforms, they had a system much like the open field system of England. Villagers divided up land in order to give each villager and, uh, in some cases to give each villager an equal share of each ecological zone in the village. Um, I think that was one of the cases. And then in the other case, uh, it was just like a way to make dividing up the land very easy. But basically they, instead of having quadrilateral plots that each individual owned, uh, they would have like all their fields would be divided into strips, which was really easy for them to do without specialized instruments. They just used, I think they used stakes on the edge of the land. Um, and it was easy for them to adjust it for family size, land quality, the shape of the field and so forth. So it was like a really sensible human scale way to divide up land. Um, but it didn't make them into conservative capitalists who wanted to get rich and buy a boat. So that didn't work for the state. Uh, so they, they did these stilly pin reforms, uh, which also did not work. Uh, there was a lot of social resistance to it, to the surveyors who attempted to, uh, drop the recreated cadastral maps. And so in many cases, nothing actually changed. Uh, and Scott notes the same happened when the Soviets attempted to collectivize the farms in the 1920s. So there, there's your CIA stuff that right there. Um. <laughs> yeah, I think there's another uh, chapter later on specifically about the Soviet Union, too. Oh, OK, enjoy that. One. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah. Do you do you remember anything else about the like this field system that they were talking about? I was kind of sleepy when I read this part, so I, my memory on it is a little fuzzy. Uh, I I don't know. I thought the uh, the everybody having a piece of a field in a different ecological zone was was the most interesting part that stood out the most to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm just trying to like because obviously you can grow different plants better and different types of uh, biomes, so give everybody a little chance to grow everything versus. I don't know. It's just uh, such a good example of that, like totalizing logic that's totally abstracted from the uh, situation. The idea that you would take that system and then break it up evenly. So, like this dude's land is entirely swamp, and my my land is like nice and arable. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like I don't know. Totally disconnected from the reality on the ground. Yeah, and that would obviously cause like vastly more wealth inequality. You know. Yeah, absolutely. For exactly the situation yeah. you just said. Um, I'm looking at the cadastral maps like before the reforms, and like it almost looks like like he made these reforms because because of like the thing he wanted to do, but also possibly because uh, his surveyors were complaining to him constantly about having to draw these little lines for all the strips of field. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's like nothing but really thin lines. <laughs> Yeah, like, please, well, sir, my hand yeah. is tired. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but they are cool maps. If if you haven't read the book, which obviously I recommend, um, get the get the PDF version of it, and uh, make sure it's the one with the pictures in it, and uh, check those out. They're on pages forty and forty one. Um, I went on LibGen earlier to like so I could copy the passage that I read earlier um, out of it more easily. Um, and the first copy on LibGen does not have the images in it for some reason. So, um, just a warning there, you might have to search through a couple different versions of the PDF to find the one with images, uh, which also check out the picture of the normal bound. Um, if you can't find a PDF copy with the images in there, I have it in the notes document. Um, so yeah, it's, it's wild looking. Well, it's not wild looking i guess yeah but, uh, it's it's very not wild looking <laughs> <laughs> um okay um so yeah uh, he scott says that a lot of the time like the villagers would either just like say fuck you to the state and like continue doing what they were doing or they would say like oh yes of course i will do, i will do it ex- exactly as you say and then continue doing exactly what they were doing before, but like, you know, pretend that they were doing it their way. Um, and the surveyors, uh, didn't seem to have like a ton of incentive not to just like forge the numbers and the drawings. Um, and even if they did, I don't think they had much ability to like enforce those reforms because they can't just like station troops out there all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Watching where people are planting the seeds and stuff. Yeah. Okay, and so the last bit of this chapter is uh, more on cadastral mapping. For those who haven't li- been listening to the show for years, a cadastral map is like an inventory of land and resources for a state to understand how much it can tax and levy its subjects. So uh, the first episode with Chris as the co-host, which was episode 301, uh, we talked about the Kokudaka system, which was... I'm surprised Scott didn't mention this, but like, uh, it was a really thorough cadastral mapping in Tokugawa, Japan, which was like a, over a hundred years before any of the stuff that he mentions here. Um, and they replaced the earlier land area measurement system of agricultural land with the Kokudaka system, which measured land according to its equivalent production of rice. Koku was the unit that they used. Um, and the shogunate during this period reformed uh, the daimyo, the rulers of Japan, according to the Kokudaka system. So the the most powerful rulers in Japan, the ones that were titled that way specifically, were lords with 50,000 koku of land. Um, so if, like, during the cadastral survey, you had over 50,000 koku of, of land, you would be put into this 
highest ruling class, like just below the Shogun. Um, and there was one single exception, which was the Matsumai clan, who didn't have that much land, but they received special daimyo status due to their role in suppressing and controlling the uh, Hokkaido Ainu, uh, which when I finally get around to doing the Golden Kamui episode, uh, I will be talking about that in greater detail. Uh, so if you're one of the people that doesn't listen to the anime episodes because you're you're not into anime, I highly recommend listening to that one when it comes eventually because it's going to be like a 30-70 mix of anime to political economy, I think. But anyway, uh, where was I? Um, okay, so the, the differences in time and quality of cadastral maps indicates the, the power of the centralizing state relative to the power of its civil society. Um, so Napoleonic France, with its powerful state and relatively disorganized villages, was mapped very early and comprehensively compared to England, which had like a relatively weak state, uh, but powerful lawyers, <laughs> which I thought was funny. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was interesting. <laughs> um, so they, they resisted cadastral mapping until uh, quite a bit later. He also points out that colonies were often mapped long before their colonizers. So the first example he gives is Ireland when it was conquered by Oliver Cromwell in the 1650s. Um, it was completely surveyed to be exploited by the English by 1680. Um, and likewise, the United States, I didn't get the year for this, but the United States was able to produce thorough uniform cadastral maps and perfectly regular rectangular plots of land called hundreds, which were 10 by 10 miles uh, that were ready for settlers to come and take. Um, that's another good picture in the book is um, I think it was South Dakota, just like yeah. perfectly square plots of land in South Dakota. Um, yeah, absolutely. If you've ever been on like a plane or anything going over the, the great plains, mm -hmm. it's all still like that. You know, it's been like subdivided and stuff, but just, yeah, squares of different colors as far as you can see. Have you worked on any large farms that, that weren't like indoors? Uh, yeah, I've worked on a couple outdoor farms, like driving trucks and stuff. It's, it's interesting driving in rural areas because it's like a lot of uh, sudden right turns because you're it's just these square fields with uh small roads between them so you're just like constantly turning 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 get to where you're going yeah i ran into some of that in central virginia um when i've driven through there there's not as many square fields i think because you know it was uh settled earlier than the west was yeah. um i think it's mostly stuff like across the ohio and stuff mm-hmm but there uh, definitely are sudden, like very sudden turns that come out of nowhere. So I definitely know what you mean by that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, one thing this really reminds me of is uh, the Allotment Act. You know, I think it's like 1887. Um, oh, I don't know about that. Like prior to that, yeah, prior to that, uh, indigenous people in the U.S. were like still living on reservations, like they are today. But the reservations were like a bigger and b still basically run. Uh, you know. I say basically, basically run however the indigenous people wanted to run them. Mm -hmm. uh, but then in 1887, uh, the government decided uh, that, uh, that it was time for them to become good capitalists. And so they, you know, took a, a census of everybody who was living in the reservations and said, like, you can no longer, like, sort of work this land communally. It's like, you're there. We've written your name down. You get this plot. You get this plot. And then anything that's left over, we're selling to white people um and Damn. yeah and so like that's uh a how the the reservation shrunk but also um when they were like taking this this survey of indigenous people to give out the land is basically when they invented this idea of blood quantum it's like being mm -hmm. an indigenous person isn't a matter of like are you are you like immersed in the culture is this like your day-to-day -day life mm -hmm. it's like how are you a like did you have somebody six generations ago who lived on a reservation was your grandma iroquois or whatever yeah exactly now you're one you know 364th iroquois damn yeah that makes a lot of sense about this one you know yeah <laughs> i had i had a related thought but i lost it now i'm just thinking of king of the hill <laughs> with, 
<laughs> when John Redcorn gets his his uh, plot of land. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Let's see. Yeah, not much more. Uh, Scott just concludes that cadastral surveys were one of a number of new weapons for utilitarian states to organize themselves and to broaden and deepen their power. Um, so that that's all the notes that I have. Um, any like general points you want to make? Yeah, one thing I think is interesting, uh, which I don't know we touched on very much, is that like Scott talks about and you know, he'll go more into this later in the book too. Um, this idea that states have this synoptic view where they want things to be like simplified and mm-hmm. they only care about certain aspects of a system. But you know, that's that's one thing. But then when you combine that with the power of a state, uh, you start ending up actually transforming the situation into that simplified version. You know, so this is like the normal bomb, the the forests that perfectly meet the state's ideal of a forest. Mm-hmm. Uh, but can't exist in real life. They just like run up against reality. And um, I just think that's uh, an interesting idea, especially when you start applying it to like society. Um, Yeah. I guess one thing I didn't um, make very clear is like, and and I think he's only sort of hinting at it at this point, although he might've mentioned it and I just don't remember, but like this whole thing with like trying to, uh, measure things in a standardized way, you know, al- almost always leads to changing the thing that's measured so to make it more measurable. Um, and that that basically yeah, exactly. means simplifying it. Yeah, I think I read something about this. I wish I had it in front of me. I could give better details. But uh, something about how when social media sites like Facebook, you know, they try to like come up with these sort of profiles of their users that they can then sell to advertisers. Mm. Um. And like when they were doing this and found that their files were, you know, because they were abstractions, they were like not exactly right. Uh, people, it turns out, are like more three-dimensional than that. Uh, but rather than like try to make their algorithm more powerful, they basically just started to try to direct people to things online, basically to turn them into more of what their profile said they should be. Yeah, wow. so that's a kind of like a chilling example of a... <laughs> Oh, that's still going on today, uh, you know, with just like enhanced yeah, power. I've never heard about that. That's crazy. But it, it does make me think of like, um, I know there was like a period where everyone was like looking at, you know, people figured out that you could look at what Facebook thinks of you, like what your profile is that gets sold to advertisers. Yeah. And uh, I remember seeing that it said I was very liberal. <laughs> and that's right. I mean, that's just like the limitations of their categories. Cause like, I would never call myself that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But, like probably you get ads for like, I don't know, Joe Biden stuff because basically they want you to yes. more, meet, more match their profile. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That makes sense of that. The ads that I get then. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, and I remembered, I remember what I was going to say earlier. Um, like uh, a big theme that, seems to be coming out here is how like seemingly small changes spiral into like huge cataclysmic like overthrows of the social order yeah. and things that seem like pretty innocuous like or even like good um can turn out to be like absolutely devastating in the long term which I, you know i don't know how you i don't know what lessons you can take from that other than like you should try and see like the long-term consequences of anything that you want to do on a social level or something. I think it's like, I I mentioned arrogance earlier. I think it's like sort of like having an idea that like, you don't know everything, like here's what you want to do, but just keep in mind that you're, you are whatever you think, definitely working with less than all the information. And I guess be like willing to be adaptive as things come up. It's like where the devastation comes in is when you just like keep trying to force the uh, uh the square peg into the circle hole until you tear it down and now it's a circle peg. I don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah, especially when it comes to ecology. Like, you know, I, I'm a programmer for a living, and even in like uh the fairly like constrained environment of a computer, uh you know, very small change can, that seems like, you know, oh, this is, 
not going to change much of anything. You know, it's like I'm changing like one line of code or something like that, or like uh, renaming one variable or something like that can like spiral out to like change the entire system, especially if it's not like um, very specifically and thoughtfully like structured. So if it if it's more like an ecological system where you have like, you know, 40 different programmers have just added parts to it, you know, without like making a specific intent to be like uniform and follow a certain practice and stick to a certain design that was thought of ahead of time, um, that makes it like even more likely that a small change can like lead to huge consequences. I've definitely like caused huge amounts of data to be lost accidentally by like making a small change in like one part of the system (laughs) somewhere that I thought was like only used for one thing. (laughs) Um, Yeah. It's just, I guess it's a chaos theory sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, It's like the example I was giving earlier with like DDT. It's like, don't, I'm thinking the only things in this system are plants and bugs. So I'll introduce DDT to get rid of the bugs. But then what do you know at 10 years later and bald eagles are almost extinct. Turns out you need bugs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's all I've got for for this chapter. I do sort of want to like. I guess the problem is I didn't I didn't like think it out ahead of time, but I I wish I had come up with more of a point about um kind of anti civ and social ecology type of stuff, where like the general practice of like high modernism, I guess, even if it's from a communist perspective or a socialist perspective can still like, I think devastate, you know, life in general. Absolutely. Well, do you, do you have anything else you want to add? Uh, no, I think that's it. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been a blast. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Um, if you're interested in coming on for other chapters, um, I would be happy to have you on for that as well. Yeah, for sure. I love this book. Yeah, I think everybody should definitely read it. Um, mm-hmm. Like I said, it's like once I read this, I started seeing it everywhere. And I just like feel like it's a part of all my analysis now. So, yeah. Stuff. And uh, remind everyone what your podcast is called so we can make sure everyone goes and checks it out. Yeah, definitely. Check out a uh, Works in Theory podcast. Uh, it's the podcast where we read theory so you don't have to. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just are basically reading like one essay or book at a time um, you from leftist, usually anarchist theory uh, and then having like a super casual conversation about it um, so that you can pretend that you read it without ever having to crack open a book. <laughs> uh, who else is doing it with you? <laughs> uh, my two co-hosts uh, are named Alicia and Tom. Um, they, we all sort of met on the uh, seriously wrong discord. Uh, and Oh, okay. Yeah, it's, nice. uh, we were actually uh, it, like, uh, influenced by people talking about, you know, you need to read theory. Do you not need to read theory? Um, and I love theory, but I also don't necessarily always want to read. And so I love podcasts yeah. that will just give me enough information to sound like I read the book without, like I said, having to actually read it myself. Yeah, I love uh, having things completely change my view of the world, but I don't necessarily love reading really dense books <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly especially stuff written like over 100 years ago forget about it <laughs> yeah i i tried to do a like a book club for capital and i only made it three chapters in because i was like this is fucking boring <laughs> i hate this <laughs> so if you do a if you do capital episodes i'll definitely be listening to those <laughs> wait all right yeah <laughs> <laughs> cool uh well thanks for coming on and thanks everyone for listening Uh, We'll talk to you next time. Bye.